Francis Chan said, it is a comfort to worship a God we cannot exaggerate. And the point he was making is that no matter how incredible we can imagine God to be, He's more. He's more. It's not possible for us to think too highly of God. It's not possible for us to give Him more credit than He deserves. It's not possible for us to fully declare His worthiness. Now, at the risk of sounding overly negative, our world is full of letdowns and disappointments, disillusions, broken promises. Seldom are things as good as we are led to believe them to be. But it's not like that with the Lord. It is a comfort to worship a God we cannot exaggerate. A couple of weeks ago, we considered the question, what is church? And we looked at the description of the life of the followers of Jesus in the church's earliest days to help us answer that question. In particular, we looked at the passage, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And we noted that the very first verse of that passage provides the basic blueprint that the church followed. And then the rest of the passage describes how those first believers lived it out. I would like to spend the next few weeks looking at this basic blueprint found in Acts 2.42 to remind us of the essentials that we need to be devoted to ourselves as followers of Jesus and as a church. As life gets busier, as responsibilities pile up, as commitments just seem to grow, as challenges and setbacks take their toll on us as we become distracted and preoccupied with so many things, we can begin to lose sight of the most important things. Let's take the next few weeks to refocus as followers of Jesus on these important things. So flip over in your Bible to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. This passage establishes the blueprint we're seeking to follow. There are four things mentioned that the early Christians devoted themselves to, which form the foundation of a New Testament church. The Greek word translated, they devoted themselves means to continue to do something with intense effort, even in the face of difficulty. To continue to do something with intense effort, even in the face of difficulty. These things, they don't always come easy. They will require us to expend effort. They can be inconvenient and challenging for us. They need to be committed to. We need to be determined about doing them. But these things, they form the foundation of their relationship with one another and was the central focus of their lives together. And we want the same for ourselves. What were these things that they devoted themselves to? It says the apostles' teaching, or as we talked about a couple weeks ago, the Word of God for us, to Bible teaching, to Bible study, the fellowship, 
the breaking of bread or worshiping together. It, it says the believers devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And we talked about how this was a, a reference to what we know as communion, which is at its core an act of worship. So we refer to this as worship and fourth, prayer. And I'd like to look at these four things over the course of the next four weeks. I want to begin with worship, the breaking of bread. Uh, and like I said, uh, rather than in particular communion, the larger context of what communion is uh, part of, and that is worship. So we want to talk about worship today. Now I realize that this is actually mentioned third in the list here in Acts 2.42, but it's the first thing that I'd like to talk about because it sits at the center of everything else. We, we worship when we study the Word of God. We worship when we engage in fellowship. We worship when we pray. All human beings worship something or someone. We're wired to worship. It's in our DNA to worship. It might be a person, a, a thing, a God, an idea, or even ourself. Paul Tripp said it this way, Human beings, by their very nature, are worshipers. Worship is not something we do. It defines who we are. We cannot divide human beings into those who worship and those who don't. Everybody worships. It's just a matter of what or whom we serve. We need to be careful about what we worship, though, because we are affected by what we worship. The object of our worship changes us. The poet Ralph Waldo Emerson made this insightful observation about worship. He said, the gods we worship write their names on our faces, be sure of that, and a man will worship something, have no doubt about that either. He may think that his tribute is paid in secret in the dark recesses of his heart, but it will come out. That which dominates will determine his life and character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship, for what we are worshiping, we are becoming. If we're worshiping anything other than the one true God, we're becoming less than what we are intended to be. We were made to worship God, and only as we are engaged in worshiping the infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-encompassing, triune God who spoke the universe into existence are we fulfilling the destiny we were created for. We are diminishing who we are intended to be when we are worshiping anything other than the one true God. Now, it might seem odd that we would even have to talk about worship being a foundation for the church, since it should be taken for granted that worship is one of the main things that's supposed to go on at church. It's unfortunate, though, that worship can be one of the last things that happen at church gatherings. Church is not a social club although it is a place for social gathering. It's not a welfare organization, although it engages in welfare activities. It's not a purveyor of morals, although it's 
Members are to pursue the high moral standards that Jesus taught. The church is firstly a gathering of worshipers of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We often think of worship as that time in our church service when we are singing songs together. We even call that part of the church service worship. And hopefully it is indeed a time of worship. But worship is much more than singing songs together at a church service. The entire church service should be different aspects of worship. When we sing we're worshiping God. When we study the Bible, we are worshiping God. When we give our monetary gifts and offerings, we are worshiping God. When we are serving one another and praying for one another and seeking to encourage one another, we are worshiping God. The first two commandments of the Ten Commandments are about worship. The first commandment, Exodus 23, you shall have no other gods before me. There are to be no other gods, real or imagined, in our heart and life that compete with Him as our one and only. The Lord is the only one to be worshipped. The second commandment, Exodus 24, says, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. This commandment forbids both the making of idols that are false gods and the making of things to represent the true God. Deuteronomy 4, 15 through 19 expands on that and explains it a little more. We're not going to flip to that passage, but it essentially says this, that God has no physical form that we can see or touch. He doesn't want us making anything that represents Him in a physical way. Further, nothing in creation is adequate to represent the infinite God. He is not like anything in the created universe. He made the whole universe. He is not the universe. Anything we create would ultimately be a misrepresentation of Him. It's interesting to look up in the, in the Scripture various times in the Bible when people are said to worship the Lord. People are said to worship when they're given a glimpse of the Lord's glory or His power or His beauty or His goodness. People are said to worship when the Lord overwhelmingly exceeds their expectations, exceeds the boundaries of what they thought possible, exceeds the limits of their imagination of who the Lord is and what He's like. Now, this is not to suggest that unless we have a mind-blowing experience of some kind, that we have not really worshipped the Lord. The point is, it helps us to understand one of the reasons why the Lord doesn't want us to make anything to represent Him. It's because we can intentionally or unintentionally put the wrong kind of limits on who we think He is and what He can do. Even though we're not supposed to make anything to represent God, are there limits 
to our thinking and imagining when worshiping God? Yes, there are. What are the limits? Well, it's what we find in his word. The Lord has described himself to us, who he is, his character, and what he approves of and disapproves of. There, there are definitely right and wrong ideas about who God is and what he's like. It's not a free-for-all where we can imagine God to be any way we want him to be. We don't define God. He defines us, and he reveals himself to us. And the most profound revelation of himself is his son, Jesus. He has given us a living expression of himself in human form in the person of Jesus Christ so we can know what he's like. John 1.18, it says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, is in close, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known, has revealed him to us. Colossians 1.15 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And then Hebrews 1.3, it says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. When we see Jesus Christ, we see God. We want our whole life to be an act of worship. Flip over to Romans 12, verse 1. We'll talk about this verse for a bit. Romans 12, 1, it says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. It says, in view of God's mercy, this is a motivation for worshiping God, His mercy. In ancient religions, people would offer their sacrifices to the deity in an attempt to obtain the deity's mercy. But we offer our sacrifice to God in response to the mercy that we have already received. It's not to earn mercy. But as a response to the mercy that we've already received. We don't come trembling before God, afraid that he's going to blow us into a billion bits if we don't offer homage to him. We, we don't come crawling up to the altar, terrified of the awesome being that sits high upon his throne, looking down on the pathetic little worms that we are. There's certainly reason enough for us to tremble before an all-powerful God who could speak us out of existence with a word. But that is not the kind of relationship with God that Jesus Christ has made possible for us. Instead, we can enter into the presence of God to worship Him with full confidence that He loves us and has given us His all in order for us to know Him personally. Hebrews 4.14, it says, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he's without sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, 
so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Back to Romans 12, 1, it says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies. Our whole self is being referred to here. Our whole self is to be a living sacrifice. God doesn't want just our toe or our finger. He doesn't just want our Sunday morning for an hour or so. He wants everything, all the time. He's given us his all in giving us his precious son, Jesus Christ. It's only reasonable that we offer our whole self to him in return. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, it says. The sacrifice being talked about here is not the kind of sacrifice that was offered in the Old Testament to pay for sins. That kind of sacrifice was killed. It's not a sacrifice that is given once and then ceases to exist, being consumed by the fire on the altar like the Old Testament sacrifices. Rather, the sacrifice being talked about here is a living sacrifice, which continues to be offered as an act of worship and praise and thanksgiving. See, the Lord is not asking us to die for him, but to live for him. Jesus Christ has done the dying for us. Our call is to live for him. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. We're made holy and pleasing through Jesus Christ. The offer of ourself as a living sacrifice to God is a holy and pleasing act of worship because of Jesus. This is, this is your true and proper worship. The original Greek here has been translated into uh, English different ways, depending on what English translation you have. Your wording may be a little different than what I'm reading here. It's been translated in different ways in an attempt to capture the intended meaning here. For example, some translate it as your spiritual act of worship. Others as your reasonable service. Others as your rational act of worship. And, and here, your true and proper worship. All of these translations are getting at aspects of the intended meaning here. The worship we are offering is spiritual and it is a reasonable, rational response to God. A helpful passage for us is the conversation that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. You might remember this story. The, the woman asked Jesus about the appropriate place to worship God. And Jesus tells her in John 4, 21, he says, Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We Jews worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. 
the giving of our life as a living sacrifice to God in response to his mercy is the kind of worship the Father seeks and finds pleasing. This is a spiritual, true, genuine, rational act of worship. We're not worshiping God in an attempt to get something from him or to make him obligated to us in some way. Instead, we worship him as a response to his overwhelming goodness given to us and simply because he's deserving of worship. Our worship of God is not confined to a particular place, but it's something that we can continually engage in as a spiritual act. Well, how can we become better worshipers of God? There are four things that that, uh, come to mind that I want to mention for us this morning. And the first is develop right and worthy thoughts of God. And A.W. Tozer uh, had some insightful things to say about the worship of God and the way that we think about God. He wrote this, he says, The God of the modern evangelical rarely astonishes anybody. He manages to stay pretty much within the Constitution, never breaks over our bylaws. He's a very well-behaved God and very denominational and very much one of us. And we ask him to help us when we're in trouble and look to him to watch over us when we're asleep. The God of the modern evangelical isn't a God I could have much respect for. But when the Holy Ghost shows us God as he is, we admire him to the point of wonder and delight. Worship rises or falls with our concept of God. That's why I do not believe in these half-converted cowboys who call God the man upstairs. I do not think they worship at all because their concept of God is unworthy of God and unworthy of themselves. And if there is one terrible disease in the church of Christ, it is that we do not see God as great as He is. We're too familiar with God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Let us think high and glorious thoughts of God that are worthy of Him. Second, we need to take time to worship God. There are so many things demanding our attention in this world. But the one thing that we must give time to is God. We need to make time to worship Him. We need to be deliberate about setting time aside to worship Him, to focus our attention on Him, to review in our mind how good He has been to us and offer up praise and thanksgiving to Him. We we need to be as deliberate about setting time aside to worship God as we are deliberate about making time to eat and sleep. You go, that sounds pretty radical, Jeff. Well, that's what Jesus said. In Matthew 4.4, you might remember, Jesus, he reminds us that the worship of God is more important than food. When Satan tempted him in the wilderness to turn stones into bread, Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy 8.3 saying, 
Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Third, we need to obey God. The clearest way for us to show our love and devotion to God is obeying him. John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commands. 1 John 2, 3, We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in him. That is how we know we are in him. Fourth and finally, we need to nourish a desire for God. We want to have the same desire for God that the psalmist expresses in Psalm 42. First two verses of that psalm says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? In the same way that the deer thirsts for that life-giving, refreshing, renewing, energizing, cool water of the stream, our soul thirsts for the life-giving, refreshing, renewing, energizing presence of God. Unfortunately, we, we try to satisfy that thirst with all these other things that can never satisfy it. Only God can satisfy that thirst. Rick Warren made the observation, the most common mistake Christians make in worship today is seeking an experience rather than seeking God. Let us seek the Lord. I want to close this reading a portion from Psalm 145. The first 10 verses of that psalm. David wrote, I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. Let's pray. Father, we are reminded today of the importance of worship. And Lord, we cry out to you right now that make us worshipers, Lord. Help us to push out the distractions and the desire for so many other things, Lord, and make us desire you above all else. 
Remind us of how good you are. Remind us of how fulfilling you are. That you are the one thing that can satisfy this deep soul thirst that we have. Lord, help us to chase after you rather than all of these other things. You are our one and only Lord, our great God. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.